out with the old and in with the new. This sounds like a New Year message, but uh, this is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, last week, we had a special speaker. We had guest speaker, Mac Tomlinson, and he was in to speak. He is a very dear friend of Bob Redmond's, and I've you know, gotten to know him a little bit too. Just an incredible man uh, who pastors a church down in Texas. And I didn't know what he was going to be talking about until just a few days before he got here. I was like, do you have anything for me? Like, can I put together scriptures or slides? He's like, nah, don't worry about it. So um, I didn't know what he was going to be talking about, but what he talked about fits perfectly with what we're touching on today, the portion of scripture that we find ourselves in. And the title of his message was Our Union with Christ, and he was preaching out of Romans 6. And in that portion of scripture, Paul is relaying the truth to the church in Rome that once we have received Jesus Christ as our Savior, once we've made him the Lord of our life, then we are now dead to sin. Our old life is gone. It's past. Once we put our faith in him, our flesh is dead. And as a Christian, we are dead to sin so that we can be made alive to God. That's what he was preaching on. He lives in us. We have now opened up the door to our lives. The Holy Spirit resides in us and guides us and encourages us. And our identity is now found in him. And the picture that Paul uses in Romans 6 is one of baptism. Um, When we're baptized, we stand in the water, right? And we make a declaration of faith that I am leaving my old life behind. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, and I am now dead to that, that my old nature. And I want to be identified with him in baptism, declaring that our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price so that we can be made alive to God. And then the pastor would probably dunk you under the water and say something like, buried with him in baptism. That's how we identify with the death of Jesus. And when we identify with him, our old self is now gone. We could be raised, what they say, raised to walk in newness of life, right? We've left that life behind. We're pressing ahead with a brand new thing. That's not who you are anymore. If you have something that's dead, you better bury it. Right? It's now in the past. That has no hold over you. That's not your identity anymore. You have put that to rest. There's a story that's told by an army chaplain, and he was serving in the army when, um, during Desert Storm. And so they're over in Saudi Arabia, and he was relaying how amazed he was at the number of soldiers that were giving their lives to Christ. Before they went into battle, they wanted to make sure that they were right with the Lord, and that kind of gives some weight to the saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. Right? Easy to say you don't believe in God until you're face-to-face with eternity. And he was amazed at how many people were coming to know the Lord. And they wanted to follow Jesus' example in baptism. They wanted to be identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, they're in the middle of the desert, so big bodies of water are hard to find. And so this very wise pastor had an idea. And so he built a very simple coffin. A very simple but very potent illustration of what was happening. That when we accept Jesus, when we are baptized, we are buried with him. We are now dead. Our old life is dead. We are raised into a new life. And that new life is all about relationship. Relationship with him. Um, You know, when you are in relationship with somebody, you want to get to know all about them. You want to know their likes, their dislikes, you know, what their hobbies are, what their dreams for the future are. Jesus knows all about us but we, if we are truly in a relationship, if we truly left that old life behind, we should want to get to know him more and more every single day. You know, we become enamored with the other person when we get into a relationship. We want to know all about them. We want to spend as much time with them as possible. Uh, you know, when, G- when Alicia and I were married, uh, when we said, I do, I didn't say, okay, I'll see you on Friday night and we'll go catch a movie. 
I didn't say that because now I am starting. My old life was behind me. I am starting something completely new. My old single life was behind me, right? At age 17. (laughs) It was behind me. We were pressing forward. It was no longer just Nathan. It was Nathan and Alicia Ewing. We were starting something brand new. In Matthew 19, Jesus said there are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, this union, let nobody tear apart. So there is a union that Mac talked about with Christ once we are born again. A new life together. And that's what Max shared. Interestingly enough, that's where exactly we find ourselves in the scriptures this week, talking about God doing a new thing. And our text today is verses 14 through 17, Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. Now remember, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus calling Matthew, the tax collector, into their group to be one of their disciples. And Matthew is so excited that he throws a feast. He throws a celebration at his house, and he invites all of his sinner friends. And so Jesus is there having this celebration with all of the sinners and the Pharisees come by, right? The Pharisees come by and they start asking his disciples, why is Jesus hanging out with this group of people? Why is he hanging out with the sinners? And as they're celebrating his new identity, um, they can't understand why Jesus would want to associate with these group of people. Mark Twain once said, having spent quite a bit of time around good people, I can understand why Jesus wanted to be around tax collectors and sinners. Uh, sometimes when we hang out with good people, they really think that they're good people, right? And so they don't see their need for God. They don't see their need for forgiveness. Now, Jesus loved to hang out with sinners, not because they were more fun, right? Sometimes people say, well, you know, those people are more, they have more fun. Sinners just have more fun. Um, Not true. That's not why he was hanging out with them. He hung out with them because they knew their spiritual condition. They knew they weren't right with God. They weren't in line with God's will. But the religious people of that day would not reach out. They wouldn't touch them. They were the deplorables, right? Because they didn't have their act together. And Jesus said, I did not come here for those who think they have it all together. I came here for those who knew that they were spiritually sick, who knew that they needed a savior. And so what he tells them, he basically gives them his mission statement. He says, listen, go and learn what this means. You guys think you're so learned. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, right? I didn't come to call the self-righteous, but I came to call the sinners to repentance. The Pharisees were quick to diagnose the problem, but they had no desire to offer a cure. Jesus said, I'm the doctor. I have the cure. That's why I want to hang out with sick people. All right, Matthew 9, do verses 14 through 17. Questions about fasting. Aren't you guys excited? We're going to talk about fasting. We all just feasted on Thanksgiving. Now we're going to talk about fasting. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This one's always been of a head-scratcher to me. It's like, okay, Jesus, I I have no idea what you're saying. Like, what are you talking about sewing clothes and wineskins? doesn't make any sense, but he's talking about not fasting. Do you ever feel like you get questioned a lot? Do you get a lot of questions? Jesus got a lot of questions. 
I'm sure that his disciples were questioning Jesus, why did you invite a tax collector into our group? And then the Pharisees were questioning Jesus, why are you hanging around all these scum of the earth people, all of these sinners? And now John's disciples come to him and ask him a question, why aren't you fasting? I see you here feasting with sinners, why don't you fast? And it's interesting to me because these disciples of John weren't really concerned with who he was hanging out with, which is what the Pharisees' problem was at that moment, but they were more concerned. They were asking him questions about religious traditions, which is normally what the Pharisees were worried about all of the times where Jesus wasn't keeping with the law. So it's kind of an interesting situation. They wanted to know why Jesus didn't conform to the religious standards of that day, and by that I mean the traditions, the traditions that they had come up with on their own, these man-made Uh, principles that they wanted people to adhere to. Now, it seems doubly strange to me because John's disciples, right? John was the poster child for nonconformity. He was the nonconformist, and yet his disciples are here asking him, why don't you keep the religious rules that we all do? But I think that this just goes to show that even the sincerest people can have the wrong focus or follow the wrong things if that makes sense. Um, they can be, people can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Okay, And I think right here, they are asking Jesus, why don't you keep the rules? They were sincere about keeping the rules, but they weren't focused on the right thing. Turn with me to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John chapter 3. We do some sword drills today. When I was little, does anybody do sword drills when they were little? They call this the sword of the spirit, right? So when I was in kids' church when I was little, they'd have sword drills. Everybody would get their Bibles out and see who could flip to the verse the fastest. I'm, around, I'm kind of out of practice. This is John 3, 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and Jews over purification. And they came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John had the right focus, right? He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that we're supposed to be following. I am earthly, all right? I'm not the one. I am the best man. I'm not the groom. But, but John, all the people are going over to him. This is going to threaten your ministry, Right? But John says it doesn't matter. He's the one that we should all be going to. We should all be going to Jesus. Everything that we've been doing here is for him. That's why we've been sent ahead of time. All right, one more verse. We're going to turn to Acts 19. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through. Wait, this isn't it. Yes, it is. 
Sorry. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul told them clearly, just as John had told them before, that I am not the one you're supposed to follow. Jesus is the one that you are supposed to follow. And yet they were still following a man. Now, granted, if you were going to follow a man, this was a pretty good man to follow, right? John the Baptist. I mean, Jesus said that he was the greatest of all born of women, and that is born in the flesh of women. He said he is the greatest. So that's a pretty good guy to follow, although still wrong right? Sincere, but sincerely wrong because we're supposed to be following the Messiah. And that's what John told them. Doesn't matter who the man is, we are called to follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you'll never be disappointed. If you follow man, eventually you're going to be hurt. You're going to be disappointed. If I haven't already, eventually I am going to let you down. All right. Eventually, I am not going to meet your expectations because I have lots of failures, lots of shortcomings, and eventually that's going to happen because I am just a man. So you're not supposed to follow a man. We are called, whoever it is, we're called to follow Jesus. He is the one. And if we do that, if we focus on him, if we follow his leading, obey his word, you will never be off the path. So they ask, why don't your disciples fast? Okay, here we go on fasting. Everybody loves the topic of fasting. Fasting can actually have, it has great spiritual benefit if it's focused on the right thing. The purpose of biblical fasting is to set aside the things of the flesh, intentionally taking time to pursue the Lord and strengthen our spirit, to hear from him, to deny our flesh, and to get direction from him. But the religious system of that day had just turned it into another religious ritual. Because if you were really spiritual in that day, if you were really spiritual like the Pharisees, you would fast twice a week. The Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Okay, so if you were really spiritual, and that's what John's disciples were doing, they were fasting twice a week. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting twice a week, but they had turned it into this big ritual because like Jesus said back in Matthew 6, they would go into the marketplace, right? They had made up their face. They were wearing certain clothes so that everybody knew that they were fasting. Mondays and Thursdays just happened to be the busiest days in the marketplace. So they were going there for a reason. And Jesus said, they go there because it makes them feel good about themselves. They get a little bit of ego boost and people see them. They take pictures of themselves and put it on Facebook so that everybody can see how, how righteous they are. That's their reward. They have received their reward in full. They're just doing it to make themselves feel good. It's not about God's glory. It's about their glory. Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You know, there's only one time where God instituted a fast. There's lots of talk in the Bible about fasting, but only one time in the Old Testament did God institute a fast, and it's found in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. This is verses 20, starting in verse 26. 
the day of atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord, your God. And for whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever through all generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from the evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. So God commanded a fast just once, right? It was on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And it's not a suggestion. He says it three times. You shall afflict yourself. And that word afflict is also translated fast. You shall fast during that time and take a Sabbath. Because it's a time where we're focusing on God and his forgiveness. We are going after God, focusing on his forgiveness. Now, at certain times throughout their history, um, kings and prophets and priests had called people to fast. It was appropriate because they were setting time aside to seek the Lord, to get his direction, to get his will on certain things. But the Pharisees had turned it into just an empty ritual. We're going to do it all the time just to show people how righteous, how religious we are. And Jesus responds to John's disciples by saying, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, John used the picture of a wedding with his disciples, and Jesus uses the same illustration to drive the point home to them. He said, John told you, he told you that he was the best man, and that I'm the groom. There's no mourning with the guests of the groom. We don't fast at a wedding, we feast at the wedding. If you're at a wedding ceremony and that person next to you won't eat, you need to throw them out. Throw them out of the wedding because we don't fast at the wedding, we feast. It's a celebration. Now, in that culture, depending on the resources of the parents, that wedding feast could last up to seven days. A seven-day wedding feast. Can you imagine? You think you ate a lot for Thanksgiving. I mean, seven-day wedding feast. That would be amazing. On our wedding day, I remember thinking at the end of it, I remember thinking, it's over already? Like that went by so quickly, all of the months of preparation and anticipation, and then it was over like that. Before I knew it, we were heading down the stairs, people were throwing rice at us, you know, and it went by so fast, and then we drove fast, didn't we? (laughs) It was over fast, and then we drove fast. Okay, the friends of the groom, okay, the friends of the groom, they were the ones that were supposed to take care of everything. They covered my car in shaving cream. You could not get into the car because of all the shaving cream, but the father of the little boy who was our ring bearer, okay, he said, he pulled his car up and he said, why don't you take my car to the hotel and I will pick it up later. Now, he had a brand new 1997 black Trans Am Turbo. It was awesome. T-tops and everything. He pulled that thing up, brand new, shiny. He said, take my car. I was excited. Yeah, I had my beautiful wife on one side. I had this amazing car, and we drove fast. (laughs) We didn't feast, or we didn't fast. We drove fast. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. But the point of fasting is to set aside time intentionally to pursue the Lord. There's no need to pursue him if he's standing right next to you. Jesus said, I'm here. I'm right next to them. It is God with us. I am Emmanuel. There's no need to fast now. They can't do that. And that should be the desire of every believer because we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride and our desire should be to be in the presence of the groom. 
Now, once a couple was betrothed, once they were officially engaged, then the groom would leave. Now, this is a little strange because when we get engaged, we want to spend as much time together as we can. But once they were engaged, then the, the man would leave. He would go back to his father's house and he would start building onto it. He would start in addition onto his father's house, a place where him and his wife could live. Now, that process obviously could take a while. It could take up to a year. But the women knew, the women knew that, listen, I'm waiting for him expectantly. It could be any time. I kind of know the season of how long that should take and when he'll be back. But she needed to be ready for when he came back. But the man couldn't go back and gather his bride, couldn't officially be married until that process was complete. The father had to come in and inspect what he had built and approve it. Now, listen, he had to do that because men, like, we don't care where we live, okay? And if it was up to us, we would have just put up some tent poles and some curtains and called it good and went back and got our wife. But the father had to approve it ahead of time. Everything had to be perfect. And then once he had approved it, at the appointed time, a time only the father knew, Then he would let his son know, okay, now is the time. I've approved it. You can go back and get your bride. It's time for the wedding feast. And guess who was responsible for getting everything ready for his arrival? All of the best men, all of the groomsmen. It was the best friends of the groom that were supposed to get everything ready for his arrival. Does that sound familiar? The friends of the groom are supposed to get everything ready for his arrival. This is kind of like what, this is our job to get everybody ready for Jesus' arrival when he comes back. But the bride would wait expectantly. She knew it was going to be a while, but she knew that it could be any time. As it drew closer, she needed to be ready. And Jesus told his disciples in John 14, says, My father's house has many rooms. If it weren't so, I would, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Now, we're the bride of Christ, and we wait expectantly for his return as he prepares a place for us. Keith Green, uh, the old amazing singer, Keith Green, had this song, and at the beginning of it, he would say, he'd say, listen, if, if you know, Jesus created this whole world in six days, and he's been away for 2,000 years preparing a place for us, this whole place is going to look like a garbage can compared to what he's preparing for you and me. And at the right time, a time Jesus says only the Father knows, he will come back and collect his bride. He will catch us up. He will take us away. They'll be caught up for a celebration. A celebration, I believe, will not take seven days, but seven years. Okay, during the time of the tribulation, the church will be caught up and will be the bride and the bridegroom together in heaven at the wedding feast while the tribulation is going on here. It's going to be pretty exciting stuff. Then Jesus says that a day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. As Jesus' followers, we fast because he is not here with us physically. We pursue him. We want to hear from him. We want to get guidance and encouragement from him. We want to build up our spirit man, and we do that because he's not here with us presently. And until that day, we set aside time to go after him, to press in spiritually, not mournfully, right? Not sad, but we also do it seriously. We're not mourning, but we are doing it seriously. We're serious about getting to him, not out of ritual, not to try to earn something from God, but simply to get to God. You guys familiar with the term hangry? It's because when you get angry when you're hungry, right? Hangry. It's kind of like those Snickers commercials, right? Somebody who turned into their Danny DeVito, right? He's all upset because he's, you know, he's hungry. And then he takes the Snickers and he turns into a regular person. He's hangry. 
The flesh is strong. If you've ever skipped out on a few meals, you know that the flesh is strong. Maybe on Thanksgiving Day, you were waiting for the meal to be done, and you were getting hangry, right? You were waiting for that to be strong. We also fast because we need to overcome our flesh. Our flesh is so strong. And even the world knows this. That's the reason for the commercial. They know that our flesh can dominate our lives. And so part of fasting is an opportunity to get control over ourselves, rely on the Spirit and the power of Jesus to walk in His strength. It's not something that we're commanded to do. Okay, We're not commanded to fast, but it can be a very productive part of things that we are commanded to do, like prayer and like worship and like getting into the Word. So should we fast? Yes, there should be periods of time that we set aside too fast, especially if you have something in your life that you need the answer to, you need direction on. If you take time to set aside what you would normally do for eating and press into the Word and prayer and worship, He will meet you there. I would suggest, I would recommend that you get a journal and you sit there when you're reading, when you're worshiping, and write down what you feel like God is telling you. And you will be, God will meet you there. He says, when you pursue me, I will meet you there. Okay? He's not going to leave you hanging. Okay, next thing that Jesus says, it was always a bit confusing to me. He says this, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Now, Jesus was a master storyteller, and he used analogies that all of those people could understand perfectly. Now, not always the parables, right? He would tell parables and people would be completely confused, but he gave analogies that everybody understood, and it was this, that if you were going to patch a shirt, you had to wash the patch multiple times, get it all shrunken up before you sewed it onto the shirt, or it was just going to make the whole thing worse. Now, when I was a kid, I used to rip the knees out of my jeans all the time. My mom can attest. We used to have to patch jeans all the time. Did you ever, did anybody use the iron-on patches? That was supposed to make things easy. Those things were terrible. They never matched. They never looked like the pants that you were putting on. It was supposed to make things easier. The patch, the whole patch system is terrible. Um, Jesus, he's saying, he did not come to patch up the old ways. He didn't come to patch up Judaism. It was only going to make it worse if people tried to stick into that old system and add what he was bringing you can't put a new patch on old clothes. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. Back then, they would use animal skins to hold the wine. Now, it sounds kind of gross, but when they, would, you know, when they would skin the goat, they would clean it up, they would tan the hide, then they would sew it all up. Then they would be able to pour the wine into that skin, seal it all up, so that the grape juice could turn into the wine. And as part of that process, the reason why they used animal skins is because they stretched. That leather would expand. And so if you don't know part of the you know, process of grapes into wine, is the fermentation would give off a lot of gases as part of what helps the process go along, and it would stretch out that skin. And eventually you would have a point after you kind of regulated those, ga- those gases where you would have, you know, very good wine preserved inside of these skins. You put a strap around it, you could carry it anywhere you go. But if you tried to put new wine, new wine that hadn't fermented yet, into these old wineskins, it was going to cause it to burst as it tried to expand more. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's giving that analogy that they would understand, but what's he talking about? Well, our Bible is divided into two sections. We have the Old Testament, right? The Old Covenant that God made with the Israelites, with those people. Then you have the New Testament, the New Covenant that Jesus has made with those that believe in him. And Jesus says, I'm doing something completely new. All 
all of the Old Testament, all of the stories, all of the pictures point to Jesus. And everything in the New Testament is the revelation of who Jesus is and what he's done. A brand new way of relating to God. And he makes it clear, he's not just teaching some form of reformed Judaism, but an entirely new way of believing and thinking and living for God. It wasn't about improving the old, but it was about ushering in a brand new way. And the new covenant cancels out the old covenant. If you were in covenant with somebody in that day, the only way that the, that the covenant could be annulled is if one of the people died. That was it. They would make a vow, they would make a covenant, and basically would say, this is unbreakable. This is a blood covenant that we are making. They would sacrifice an animal, they would split it in two, and then they would walk between that animal, and they would say, may, may what happened to this animal happen to me if I break this covenant with you. Unless that person died, then a new covenant could be ushered in. And that's what Jesus' sacrifice was. It was ushering in a brand new covenant. You know, I used to read this verse, and I used to think that Jesus was talking about people. That the new wineskins were the believers. These were the people that, you know, believed in Jesus. And the old, brittle wineskins, you know, those were the ones that had rejected Jesus. And I read some commentaries that kind of, you know, allude to that. And I suppose you could make a case for that. But, you know, what? G- here's the thing. God is never done with people, right? He continues to give them opportunities. He specializes in softening hard hearts. So just because we get old and crusty doesn't mean he just kind of, you know, is done with us. He continues to pursue us. Give her- gives every opportunity to repent and come back to him. So he's talking about a new kingdom, a new message. This is an internal gospel of forgiveness and cleansing that can't be attained, it can't be attached to those old external traditions. Those old rituals that taught that if you wanted to get to God, you had to perform in a certain way. You had to do certain things to earn favor and gain access to that forgiveness. And the word tear that Jesus uses here, um, tear like a patch that was tearing away from that close, is the root word is schisma. Schisma, which is where we get our word schism, which means a gap or a chasm, right? A divide. And the verb, the verb form of that is schizo. Now, this is so cool. Schizo. Because it's the same word that's used in Mark 15 to describe the curtain in the temple when it was torn from top to bottom and created a divide, a gap where there was now access to the Holy of Holies. The old way had been pulled apart. A new thing was happening. And unfortunately, the Jewish people didn't see it that way. They saw it as a tragedy because now all they saw was a gap between them and God instead of access to the Father. The old covenant, there was no access. It required sacrifice. It required blood. It required one man, one day a year, to take that blood, go behind the curtain, and make atonement for the people's sin. And this happened year after year after year. Now, the new covenant gave us instant access to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice. He is our perfect high priest, our perfect mediator between us and the Father. And because of that, We're forgiven, and that's one of the reasons why we celebrate. That's the reason why we can have joy, joy of our salvation, even in the midst of difficult times that we may walk through in this world, which is so temporary. But the pharisaical, legal, self-righteous system couldn't connect to, couldn't be added on or contained in the ministry or the message of Jesus. And consequently, that system had no other option but to oppose, to oppose Jesus and to try to eliminate him, which is what it did. Now, the interesting thing is, in how God turns all things, all things for the good of those who love him, is that in killing Jesus, they actually facilitated the perfect sacrifice that was ushering in the new covenant. 
And the Jewish people are still caught up in the old covenant. It's very sad, uh, but they have a problem. Because when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, sacrifices stopped. There have been no more sacrifices in the temple because there's been no temple. The only thing left from that temple are the foundation stones, which are now called the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is the old foundation to that temple. People go to that wall, they pray, they mourn, they stick little prayers inside the cracks of that because there can no longer be sacrifices for sin. There's no longer access, and there's a huge divide between them and God. That's why they're so eager to rebuild the temple. They've been eager and trying to plan this ever since they became a nation again in 1948. And... um, they are, they are preparing furiously for that. As we get closer, and this is one of the ways that we know that our time is short, is because they are furiously making preparations for a third temple. Now, this has a lot of application for us today because Jesus' answer to these disciples of John, to the Pharisees, reveals that they did not understand the times that they were living in. Jesus is telling him, just like he told the Pharisees in Luke 12, you guys are really good at predicting the weather. Like if you see clouds rolling in from the west, you say, okay, a storm's coming. Or if you feel a breeze blowing in from the south, you say, well, it's going to get warmer. He said, you guys are really good at predicting the seasons, but you don't know what season you're living in. The season where the kingdom has arrived. And we are called as believers to discern the times and the time we believe is getting short. Everything that has needed to take place for Jesus to come back either has happened or is currently almost in place, okay? Global government and monetary systems are being talked about with lots of frequency, okay? They are almost in place. The Jewish religious leaders, as I said, are furiously preparing for a third temple. They are breeding, they are actively breeding red heifers, okay? Red heifers were needed to purify. They were used in purification rituals. There has to be a red heifer that will be sacrificed and used in the purification of the new temple. And they are currently trying to breed to find a perfect one without blemish that they can use. They're doing that right now. You can look in the news. I promise you it's true. Jason knows. <laughs> Sends me stuff like that all the time, <laughs> which I appreciate, actually. One World Religion, just this past week, um, if you didn't know, there was a multi-faith event on Mount Sinai, at least what they believe to be the Mount Sinai, where they had Christians and Catholics and Hindus and Muslims and Jews all up on, the, up on Mount Sinai, and they came together under the guise of climate activism. And they had these stone tablets, which were supposed to be symbolic of where Moses received the Ten Commandments, and they had written on them the Ten Spiritual Principles for Climate Repentance. And then they symbolically smashed them on the ground because we have not taken care of the earth in the right way, okay? Now, this sounds very silly, but the enemy is clever, and he's clever at cloaking and deceiving, and so bringing all of these people together under the guise of climate activism, he is you know, trying to deceive once again, if he can bring people together, um, eventually there will be a one world religion. And this is just steps towards that. Like I said before, we as believers need to discern the times. We need to be careful. We need to keep our focus and our following in the right way, pointed towards the Lord. Now, Jesus consistently rebuked the legalists who were hyper-focused on his behavior and how it didn't fit into their religious system. And Jesus would tell them, listen, you may not understand my ways, okay? But look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of my ministry. Look what is happening in people's lives. Focus on the fruit. We talked about this back in Matthew 7, right? How do we tell who the phonies are? 
The phonies in our culture. We have lots of phonies in the church today. Lots of imposters, lots of wolves in sheep's clothing. We're supposed to look at the fruit, the effects of their ministry. When Jesus met Nicodemus on the rooftop, Nicodemus said, nobody can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. He saw the fruit of Jesus' ministry, the effects. If you want new wine in your life, if you want new wine in your life, a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit in your life, you need to focus on the messenger, on Jesus, and on the message in his word. If you want a new infilling of the Holy Spirit, if you're asking for that in your life, our focus in our following needs to be in the right place. God can use whatever methods he wants. Okay, don't become as concerned about the methods as you are the messenger and the message. And when we focus on methods, we can get into all kinds of rituals. Um, there's a story that was relayed about um, John Calvin, and he would preach from the pulpit in this huge cathedral, and he would wear a hat. And so some of the you know, parishioners were talking, and they were arguing about, should we wear hats in church? I mean, Calvin's wearing a, a church, and if, if he's wearing a hat on his head in church, then we should all go out and get hats and wear them in church, like Chris. And... <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because one time there was a pastor, I'm going to finish this story, but there was a pastor and there were a bunch of teenagers sitting in the balcony and they were all wearing hats. And some, some guy came to him, an older gentleman, and he said, I think it's really disrespectful that those teenagers are up there and they're wearing hats in church. And the pastor, very wise, said, I don't see, you know, I don't see kids up there wearing hats. I see kids in hats wearing, you know, in church. I don't see kids wearing hats. Uh, I see them in church. And yes, they have hats on, but who cares? We're not going to get caught up in tradition. We're not going to get caught up in ritual. And so anyway, back to the John Calvin story. They got John Calvin. And they said, why do you wear a hat in church? And he said, well, first of all, this is a big cathedral and it's drafty and my head gets cold. And second of all, some birds have built nests up in the belfry. And so I do it to keep my head dry and to keep my head warm. And so they thought that this was some kind of ritualistic thing that they were going to take on, a method. And he said, no, actually, that's, that's not the reason. And then there was another pastor who used to, when he would pray for people, he would lay his hands on them. And when he was done, he would say, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. And he would clap his hands and he would stomp his foot. And before long, he looked out as people were praying over other people in the sanctuary and they would start to clap their hand and stomp their foot. And they started to take on this method of this pastor. They got into ritual instead of focusing on the ministry of what they were supposed to be doing. Because when the focus is no longer on the Lord, we can get into all kinds of weirdness. And then the Lord's work isn't really being done. There was a, a businessman who had taken a trip to Atlanta. And he was in his hotel room at night. And he was getting hungry. He wanted to go get dinner. And uh, so he starts to flip through the yellow pages. This is quite a few years ago. So he was flipping through the yellow pages, trying to find a place to eat. When he came across a diner with a very unusual name. It was called the Church of God Grill. And so that got his curiosity up, and so he picked up the phone and called the restaurant and got the owner, and he said, what's the deal with your name, Church of God Grill? And so the guy started to tell him. He said, well, he said, you know, we started a little church down here, and, you know, after services, we started serving chicken dinners to help pay the bills. And people liked the chicken dinner so much, we were doing so well with the chicken dinners that eventually we cut back on the church service, and uh, we just continued with the chicken dinners. So we just kept the name that we started in the first place, you know, Church of God Grill. So they had lost their focus. They were giving people what they wanted, but not what they needed, right? They were focusing on something that had gotten their eyes off of the Lord. They had lost their focus and their following. And you can, you can come back up. Um, are we commanded to fast? No. 
We're not commanded to fast. Should we fast? Yes, we should fast. We should intentionally set aside time to pursue the Lord, to grow our spirit, to strengthen our spirit, man. Our flesh is way too wrapped up in this world. And fasting is a great way for us to separate ourselves from the world. If you don't believe how strong your flesh is, set your phone aside for a day, skip a couple meals, and we'll probably break out into hives or we'll start shaking or something like that, right? It's a wonderful thing to be out in the country where you don't get reception. Actually, it's kind of a wonderful thing when nobody can reach you. But our flesh is strong. And so to strengthen our inner man, we set aside time to fast and pursue the Lord, and it can be very profitable. Now, if we're just skipping meals, that's not going to be profitable for your spirit, man. Um, dieting isn't fasting. Replacing those meals with time with the Lord is what we're after because he's not here with us in the flesh presently. Okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to connect this with what Mac was talking about. Our union with Christ and our need for new wineskins. When we follow Jesus and we leave our old life behind, we're now dead to sin. That was Max's message. The new life that we're living in Christ can't be connected to our old sin nature. Like the term carnal Christian. That's, a contra- that's an oxymoron. You can't, you can't have carnal Christians. Okay, It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way. You're either a Christian or you're carnal. Now, because of the new covenant, we've been given a new heart and we've been given a new mind, which should result in changed actions and then the overcoming life that Jesus desires for the saints. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are a new creation, right? We've been born again. We are a new creation. And it's only that new creation that has the capacity to live like Jesus, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, to be salt and light. All of that comes by letting God do a new thing in your life. Don't get caught up in legalism. Don't get caught up in the method, methods. Just because he did it that way in the past doesn't mean he's going to operate that way in the future. But when we focus on him and we follow him, we listen to his voice, we dig into his word and stay true to that, he's going to lead us into life. That was the message of John. That was the message of Paul. And that's the message that I give to you today. Follow him. Be identified with his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the new life that he's given us. Let us do a new, li- a new thing in your life, and he will fill you to overflowing. Now, we can't be overflowing if we don't pursue him and let, us, let him pour into our lives. It's one of the things I love about um, the coffee shop that Mark and Christy started, and they named it Overflow, because that's what our lives should look like. Rivers of living water is what Jesus called it. When he does a new thing inside of us, it spills out on everybody else around us. That's how people know we're different. That's how when they see us, they say, that person has something that I want. I'm going to ask them about it because they're different. They're not like everybody else. They're not worried about the future. They're different. And they're different because they're filled up to overflowing. And they're spilling it out all over everybody else. That's who we're called to be. Amen. Christ had triumphed over.